Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. It's a guest that have been there, have done it, you know, multiple times, you know, on his last company. He was at it for about 20 years, built it to a $3.5 billion business, thousands of employees, and now he's at it again. So I guess that, you know, when you've done it so many times, I mean, you've also developed certain things about pattern recognition when it comes to the execution. And I think that we're going to be learning a lot today, you know, especially I think that many of you are going to get inspired. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Hari Ravichandran. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you were born and raised in India. So where about in India? And tell us about your upbringing. You know, I had a kind of unique and interesting upbringing. Uh, I grew up in India, lived there until I was about 14 in the southern part of India. My uh, parents, uh, you know, they ended up moving out to the States. They, when they came back to India, you know, the, the big sort of uh, uh, two-year journey that my dad had in the U.S., he really wanted his kids to move out here to have a good uh, set of opportunities and a good, good life. And so uh, ended up moving out here when I was about 14, interestingly, through a rotary exchange program, which is sort of uh, a unique and different way to come into the U.S. Uh, when you're a young kid. And obviously for you, I mean, your father, I mean, was a really big influence for you to really come here to the U.S. And it seems that for him, you know, really being in the U.S., it was the place to be. So, you know, what, what, what happened? Perhaps, I mean, he had to go back because he had also experience with the Fulbright uh, scholarship, the, the whole U.S., you know, approach and culture and mindset. So, so whatever happened to him that, you know, really got him to say, my son, you know, is going to be the one that is going to go there and make it happen. You know, it's really interesting because this is, again, you know, you're talking about sort of late 80s uh, when he was here. It was sort of a, a, a big kind of cultural divide between the countries that had a lot and the countries that didn't. And India was still on a trajectory where there just was not a lot of resources, not a lot of opportunities, uh, et cetera. I think the thing that struck him here was just the abundance of opportunity where if you worked hard, you had the right mindset, uh, you expended the effort. And if you had the right set of circumstances, you could end up having a lot uh, of resources and a lot of opportunities that may not be available in India. So he had to, because of the way his program was structured, he could only live here for um, the window of time and then he had to return back and had to spend two years minimum there before he could come back to the US. So even that window of time, he thought, man, you know, if I could get my kids to have a better opportunity and 
have them be uh, in this country and have them be integrated from when they're young, uh, it could end up being a much different life than he and my mother had when when they were growing up. So then, actually, you know, when 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 you were in the airport, you know, and you were coming here to the U.S., your phrase there was a phrase that your father gave you that kind of like really got stuck with you. What was that? You know, on the way out again, again, you got to imagine a kid that's 14. I'd never been anywhere. I'd never traveled anywhere. I'd never been out of the house. Uh, even when my parents were here, I was staying with my grandparents. On the way out, my father said, "Figure out a way never to come back," and that stuck with me. And that was sort of a big dominant part of my uh, childhood years as I kind of moved to this country and tried to figure out how to make a life for myself and get integrated into the, into the American way of life. And how how did the entrepreneurship book come about? I mean, is that something that you develop, or is this you know something that you're carrying from the family genes, or what's what's going on there? You know, it's actually a little bit of both. My my parents, you know, they always were thinking around what different sort of uh, opportunities. They started a publishing company when desktop publishing was just getting popular. My grandparents were really in the book publishing business, so I got to see that a lot when I was a kid. And after I moved here, again, you know, a lot of my focus was building a very stable, steady career. That's really what I had been thinking about as I was going to college, et cetera. And then I had the good fortune of being out in California in the late 90s. So I was out in Silicon Valley. I was living out there. And it was just a crazy time. It was insane. Everybody was starting a business. The dot-com boom was just starting up and going. And uh, it just was like a dynamic, exciting, wonderful time to be part of uh, uh, the Silicon Valley culture. And I really got the bug. And at that point, I thought, gosh, like I see, like, you know, when there are people that are really passionate about the work they're doing, how excited they get. It felt familiar from when my parents were doing sort of startup oriented stuff as well. And so at that point, I just said, look, I'm going to take the leap. Like, I got I to gotta go do something on my own. Uh, dropped out of college and started my first company or dropped out of graduate school and started my first company. Well, that's a big deal because, I mean, in, in India, there's a lot of pressure for getting like the really big degrees. Uh, and, yeah, and, yeah. and and getting the shiny CV, and I'm sure that you know in this case you know for you 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 had you were able to get into one of the best universities in the world to really study you know a a, a program that you know I'm sure that you know everyone was like wow you know back in India so I'm sure that for you taking that decision of of dropping out you know it was not easy and and I'm sure that your parents you know were thinking like what what the hell Harry's yeah that's that's exactly right I mean there's still uh a lot of sort of uh, angst about it, I would say, for a decade after. But, you know, it's it just something about that time. This is, again, you're talking about the late 90s. It just felt like a whole new world order was being created. And everybody that was around me, like people that were in school at the time, like Yahoo had just started out of Stanford at the time. Hotmail had just come out of there as well. Excite, which was an earlier search engine uh, that had come out of there as well. And you just look at these things and you say, wow, these folks are brilliant. They're really smart. But man, like if they can do it, I can do it. Like why should I? Why should I uh, not take the, the the step to be able to try to go build something on my own? And that I remember was a very dominant factor in my mind. I just kept thinking, you know, if they're able to do it, I ought to be able to do it too. And and you know, it ended up being the right decision for me and and for my life. So your first company, Endurance International, I mean, quite a quite a success. You know, being the first company is it's not easy to get it right on the first try, but. Uh, but you were obviously very lucky, you know, and as they say, luck is preparation meets opportunity, right? Uh, but in your case, you know, like how were the early days and how did you really like bring this to life and, and really, you know, the, 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 the early days? I mean, how were they like? You know, Alejandro, 
we it, it, it's like those overnight success stories where you're going to spend years and years and years and then suddenly you're like wow we're now a success it wasn't that different for us even in those days right so when i started it i remember thinking that it was like a very simple notion i didn't have these grandiose sort of you know views of hey i want to go change the world i want to go build a multi-billion dollar company or any of these types of things i remember thinking look i love the notion of entrepreneurship i see a lot of people doing stuff on their own i love the idea that if i can do something i love doing and i have control of the work i'm doing all i really need to do is pay my bills right so it was as simple as that so that's how i started i said okay you know how much does it cost me every month to live my life and at that time it was about two thousand bucks a month Right. And I thought if I can do something I love doing and pay the 2000 bucks, then everything else above that is just gravy. It's all just extra dollars that I can kind of get. And so that's the simple notion I started with. And then the next thing I thought about is, well, what am I actually good at? Like, what can I actually do that could be of value to other people? And I thought, okay, well, I know how to write code. The internet is just starting. So maybe I can help, you know, smaller businesses that don't have a lot of technology savvy to come use the internet better. Maybe kind of get them to port over the internet. And so that's how we got started with the with the, that's how we got started with the first business, and and then it's a little bit of risk taking where you have to say okay this feels scary you're sort of in the zone where uh, it can, it can be like a little unsettling, and you got to take the leap. And so I remember this. So when I was first getting started, I didn't know how to get customers to come in and 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 have them get started. And I think I had about I'd been working at Sun Micro at the time. I'd saved up maybe about seven thousand bucks or so, and I thought. You know, I would go talk to people. I'm like, well, how do you get customers? And people would say, well, you should advertise. You should go to these magazines and put out an advertisement uh, on, on the magazines. And so I took about $5,000 of the 7000 I had in savings and bought three ads on Wired Magazine, PC Magazine. Uh, I think it was Buzzed. I think it was the third magazine at the time. And and then I put in my cell number, which had just sort of you know gotten to be popular. Cell phones were just getting popular at the time. And I was doing my consulting job. I put all this in. And I remember calling my parents and saying, I'm going to take this big leap and I have, I'm going to put most of my savings into this thing to get started. And my dad said, well, if you blow the money, don't call me for rent, you know, cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, sort of uh, uh, cover this because you had a good opportunity. And so, so there's a little bit of stress there. So for two weeks I sat there and I waited for the phone to ring. Nobody called. And I thought, man, that's the shortest startup in the history of all startups. You know, it's only like two weeks and it's already out of business. And, you know, I'm sure enough one evening I'm driving back home and I get a phone call pick it up. And the guy says, Hey, you know, I got a bookstore. It's an offline bookstore. I want to get online. Can you help me do it? And I said, yeah, like I can do it. And that's really all it takes. It takes that one thing. And then the momentum builds up and the momentum builds up. And then, you know, it started, it started working out pretty well. So. Because what, what ended up the business model of Endurance International? So we were helping small businesses use the internet better. So, you know, whether it's sort of email, web services, uh, marketing services, the full bundle of solutions that help small businesses use the internet better because again enterprises have it staff you know small businesses uh they're very passionate they build uh great solutions but they don't really have a lot of resources so for a very kind of affordable price point we're trying to get them online and get them to use our services so then tell us about also capitalizing the business how do you guys go about doing that so you know it's interesting initially uh and again to this day i still believe this is the right way to do it which is you know, wherever you can be very uh, thrifty uh, in the beginning uh, to kind of make sure that your product is working, customers are actually paying for it, try to be as strict as possible, which is what we did for about a year or two. And then when the model started working, then we went out and we raised a bunch of venture capital. Uh, this is in the late 90s. Uh, we had Alta Ventures, Advanced Technology Ventures, Bank Boston Ventures. 
We raised about 30-ish million bucks from them. And we invested all that money into our platform to be able to build the technology up so we could scale lots and lots and lots of small businesses because they weren't paying us very much on a monthly basis. So that was the initial model. Got it. And obviously a lot of ups and downs because here you were involved for a little bit over 20 years with this company, you know, yeah. and, and, and now you're involved with your latest one, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But, but in this case for you, I mean, you were able to really experience the dot-com bubble and the bust. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and here you were also pressured. I mean, you had raised quite a bit of money. So obviously all those investors, they wanted, you know, to eventually see, you know, their liquidity event. And that was probably in the form of an IPO. So yeah. so in this case, you know, like how was how was going through that, you know, craziness of the dot com bust? I mean, oh, it, it's just it's crazy. It's just ups and downs, ups and downs and all in like short windows of time. One morning, you know, it was funny, Alandra, I'll tell you, like when we were setting up our servers. I was 20 when I started this company. I was 20 at the time, right? And, um, you know, and the dot-com boom was so good and the company was starting to kind of, you know, uh, be on the up and up. We we made all the passwords in our servers retired at 22, right? So we thought we were in it for two years and uh, we're all going to make a lot of money and then we're going to retire. And that, again, as a young person, that's sort of how your mind works. And, you know, the thing about it is the after we raised money, which was sort of at the peak of the market, Starting 01, the market started going the other way. And it's just baffling. You don't understand what is actually happening because you have this vision in your head of exactly how things are going to go down and what's going to happen next. And there's this big jarring event where you're like, okay, well, I, I, I didn't expect, I didn't account for that. I don't know what to do now. And so, and there's a lot of uh, internal strife within the company itself. And there's a lot of strife with the capital markets externally as well. Um, so it was a very challenging time. and you know, we had like a six week window where we were going to run out of money. And we basically had to convert our entire business model from advertising focus, which is what it was in the early days, to a subscription business. We didn't have a billing system. We didn't have some of the engineering that was needed to be able to kind of uh, uh, put plans in place for customers, all this type of stuff. And so there were, you know, we'd taken the company at that point, at the high point, the company was about 250 people. We took it down to 14 people. And we and it, we were all like out in the Boston area, and we literally worked eight weeks nonstop. Like we were just one unit. We worked hard. We completely rebuilt the billing system, uh, integrated all the pieces we needed to, and then we took all of our free customers and made them convert to paying customers, whichever ones that were willing to do so. And that really then became the lifeline to be able to build on top of into a company that eventually got to be a three and a half billion dollar business. So, so then in in this case, I mean. Obviously, we, we were talking about like the deal-making side of raising capital. I'd like to hear too, because we typically talk about the acquisition side of things, but more from the selling, uh, the, the company type of, from the seller point of view. And in fact, for yeah. the people that are listening, you know, they've probably, you know, heard from previous episodes about the, the book that I just launched, Selling Your Startup. But in this case, you know, like, let's talk about like the, the buyer's point of view, which is, you know, on your end, on Endurance International, you actually did, you know, over 40 transactions. So so how was that integration process for you guys? How did that work out? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. You know, so as I was saying, as soon as the dot-com bust happened, we converted this thing to a subscription-based model. And then we realized, it was interesting, we had this big platform that could host millions of customers. We only had about 20,000 when we converted people from free to paid. So we had to fill up all this capacity and the way we thought we could do it is to go buy other companies that had subscriber bases that we could then port to our platform, right? 
And so on the buying side of it, man, we went from our first deal was a $30,000, uh, you know, company that we acquired to the last deal I did in 2015, 2016 as a public company, we bought a company called Constant Contact for over a billion dollars. And so we went from the the early uh, stages all the way to the to the to the larger transaction size, and the thing that we learned through it is, if you you really have to do a few things right because if you are simply valuing a company based on what's tangible like what's there okay just your numbers you know what is the growth rate what's your revenue look like what's your EBITDA margins and all of the metrics, people always come to the same viewpoint which is okay this thing should be worth between this and this, like some range, and it's usually a tight range, right? Uh, the few factors that always were helpful for us is to look beyond that to say, okay, if we buy this thing for what it's worth, but we put it inside part of a bigger system, what could that be worth as part of the, of the bigger whole? So that was one big thing. The second thing, again, entrepreneurs, you know, if you are an entrepreneur like myself, you know you have a lot of passion, you build things, and you work on things that you absolutely love building and working on. And so, you know, many a times entrepreneurs are very focused on what is the, the, the right uh, avenue to drive growth for the business. So they may not be great at keeping their books and like, you know, giving you financial audits and things like that. So we always work really hard to not have that be a negative against the entrepreneur. We would actually go do the work on their behalf and then take all of the stuff that they had and put it into a format that we would understand. So kind of making their job easier for them can also give you an edge especially in this market where it really is a seller's market right now because uh, the, the, the equity markets are very strong, lots of capital in the system. Entrepreneurs, you know, if you're about to go sell a business, you might have one, two, three different choices. So how do you win where the entrepreneur says, I'm going to go with this person versus another when the pricing is all in that tight band? It's that personal relationship. You know, it's how much are you making their life easier? Do you understand their vision? Do you want to work with them? And do they feel like, okay, I'm giving my baby to somebody that's going to take good care of it? So those types of elements always were super helpful to us, even in the past. So let's talk about, you know, I mean, obviously there's a company that you built from the ground up out of your garage, and uh, and and eventually you take public, and finally you you decide, you know, to to step aside and uh, to go at it again, you know, with another company. I mean, how how was that decision, you know, process like? And 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 I'm sure. It was kind of like scary, but exciting at the same time because endurance was everything you knew, you know, really from a professional, you know, perspective. And and I'm sure that was kind of like a, a pivotal moment for you. No, it, it really was. You know, it's 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 really interesting. You know, when, when I left endurance, uh, we were doing, you know, just about $4 million of revenue every single day, right? And so, and we built that from zero uh, and it was doing about a billion two in revenues as I was leaving. And you know, and you incrementally keep on building and keep on building and keep on building. And, you know, one day it's sort of a big company. And, I, you know, the thing I, I started noticing towards the end is a lot of my DNA was very focused on growth, building, et cetera, which again, in a public setup, the way you build is a little bit different than a private company. And so I really missed uh, being able to build something from the ground up again and sort of, you know, have it kind of ramp up because the, the most fun times I had even if it was a small company, was huddled together with uh, a group of really passionate people that wanted to work with you, you know, being really connected to the customer, thinking about what products we could build. And I started missing that as we got bigger and bigger. But I mean, you know, the, what you say is, is, uh, is definitely uh, something that still sticks in my mind. I left Endurance. There was about five or six of us that left. 
we ended up subletting the small office space in Back Bay in, in Boston area. And the first day I walked, I went in, I pulled into this like basement garage and upstairs I knew my three uh, uh, coworkers were upstairs. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? This is crazy. Like we left this thing with like 4,000 people and like, you know, a billion dollars of revenue to walk upstairs. We have no product. We don't know what we're going to build. We have no employees. We have no capital. And we're starting from like scratch again. And again, I, I remember thinking, wow, this is really scary. And I haven't felt scared in a while. And, and it actually was a good feeling because that excites you, that motivates you, that makes you want to push yourself. And it gives you something to shoot for. And so the, the, the positive of it is it really drives you. It keeps you young. It keeps you motivated. And I love that. Uh, and of course, the challenging part is like many startups, you have to kind of overcome a lot of hurdles to actually get to, to a place where, uh, where you can be relevant in, in the market. So. so then tell us about Aura. So your latest baby. So, so how yeah. did the idea of Aura come about and, and, and what are you guys up to? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. In 2014, I had a, a personal incident that happened where basically my, somebody had filed a bank loan in my name, basically. So my identity had gotten stolen, right? And so I remember thinking, well, this is bizarre. So I go online, I try to figure out what the right solutions are for it. And, I, and it was like an overwhelming feeling because you feel like I'm not sure if these people are going to steal my money, like what's happening, like I'm not sure. How does it affect my family? How does it affect my credit? So I remember thinking that and thinking, wow, it's, it's surprising to me that nobody's really solved this issue, right? And so I kind of put it in the back of my head and then we were still working on endurance or so it was busy for another two, three years. And then when we left with uh, the other three guys that left endurance with me at the same time, we were chatting with them saying, you know what? That seems like a big problem that's going to keep on getting bigger. Like data is getting used in a lot of negative ways against consumers and families all of the capital is going towards enterprises and uh, towards big enterprise security type solutions. And nobody's really focused on the consumer. Uh, and there are like 50 solutions out in the market. Like it's so overwhelming. You have no idea if you need a password manager, you need a VPN, you need uh, other types of security for your IOT, transaction monitoring, identity protection, all of these different things. So, and, and, and beyond that, when you start to add all these up together, like a family might pay 80 bucks or hundred bucks a month. For a particular solution, which is too much. So we thought, okay, how do we use scale technology to take this very complicated fragmented problem, create one solution around it, and really keep the pricing of it much lower so people can afford it? And again, you probably already see the pattern recognition here. Again, for, for small businesses, that was the same thing we were doing um, by putting a bundle solution together in an integrated manner to help them use the internet. And now we're trying to do the same thing for cybersecurity for consumers. And so that was a pattern we recognized. We're passionate about the problem. Uh, our mission really then became to create a safer internet, which seemed very worthwhile. I'm a, I'm a dad. I've got three kids, you know, and I feel like, uh, you know, as I see them grow up as digital natives, making sure that they have some security, some sort of uh, uh, set of governance around the devices that they use that they've been born into, basically. Uh, it's something that's very appealing that I feel like in, in the long term, uh, is going to be leaving a little bit of a mark to make uh, make the world uh, a little bit uh, a little bit safer for people. So, so how do you guys make money here? So we're a subscription business. So typically, customers will pay us between twelve to fifteen dollars a month for the full bundle of solutions, uh, monthly plans and annual plans, and it's integrated. So it's got all of your antivirus things you need, VPN, transaction monitoring, identity protection, all in one for about fifteen-ish bucks, basically. And now we have about 1.75 million customers that pay us. So the company will do 
about 230 million of revenues this year. So we're off to a good start and it's starting to ramp up pretty nicely. Hey, no kidding. I mean, you guys have been in business for just four years. So, I mean, four years. Wow. Yeah. It's been good a good ride. Yeah, wow. Good rocket yeah. ship, rocket ship style. Yeah. So, so in terms of culture as well, you know, you are coming, you know, with the advantage of having built a business to over 4,000 employees. So you really know, you know, how it goes from early to growth to ramping up, you know, how, you know, maybe like some of the constraints of growing so quickly. I mean, all of that stuff. What have you learned about culture on the first time around that you knew you were going to be implementing your second time? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The first time we didn't think about it that much. It was such a fight to just stay alive and kind of keep going. And you keep thinking, okay, I'll get back to building culture and that's going to be important. But the thing you find is whether you like it or not, whether you kind of work on it or not, there's always a culture. You know, it could be a good culture. It could be a culture you can influence or it could be a culture that just develops because you're, you know, there's a vacuum there, right? And so this time around, it was sort of a, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to um, Masters of Scale, which is a podcast that uh, uh, that uh, Reed, yeah. Reed Hoffman does. And, you know, they were asking Reed Hastings a question saying, hey, what do you think about strategy versus culture? Because everybody that's a really successful company, they always say my culture is great, but it might be because their strategy was great. And it turned out that there was a culture that supported the strategy and now the culture becomes the dominant thing. And I, I, I love this answer, which was really, you know, look, when I did my first company, which is what uh, Reed Hastings was saying, I know we focus a lot on strategy, but that company, uh, they, they had a good sale. They sold it for 17 million bucks, but it was good that they sold it because if they hadn't sold it, it would have collapsed. And he said, the second go around, I thought, why would you not do both? Like, just because you have a great strategy doesn't mean you can't work on a great culture. And that's how he built Netflix. And obviously, that's been a huge success story. So I found that very sort of inspiring because um, to me, why wouldn't you focus on both those elements, you know, where you basically have a great strategy that can drive sort of a big scale business, but make sure that the people engine and all of the people that are working on it uh, really believe in the journey and really line up behind the strategy. So kind of building the culture around it. I'll tell you another story, you know, when uh, with Endurance, I remember this, we were at an offsite at the Ocean Edge out in, out in Cape Cod with all of our executives, our board members, uh, et cetera. I think the company at that time was doing about $750 million in revenues. And I looked at the team and I said, listen, like we've gotten this far, it's been a great ride. And now we need to kind of figure out how to go from 750 to $2 billion of revenues, right? And, 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 and people were all shaking their head. They were all excited about the, the vision. And that night I was out having drinks with uh, some of the executives. And one of them looked at me and said, you know, you said that you wanted to, for us to go figure out how to get from 750 to 2 billion, but I don't know if you realize this, but literally for the first 750 million dollars worth of revenue, you always just told us what to do, right? So now I don't know how you expect for us to go from here to there when we have no training and we haven't worked together as a team to solve problems on our own. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake here because everything was so you know, sort of top down, like, oh, go do this, go do that. I never let the team sort of, you know, work together, try to solve problems, make mistakes, learn, you know. And, and so this time around, that is a huge part of what we're very focused on is, you know, again, you have to sort of make, be the arbiter of decisions, but can you give the team a lot of room to kind of figure stuff out on their own, to make mistakes together, to know how to work through problems constructively and build that solid foundation underneath it? Because if you don't do that, you'll get to some number, whether it's 10 million, 50 million, 200 million, 700 million, and you can't scale it beyond that. Like for it to scale, the whole machine's got to work. And so that was a great lesson for me and you know something that we're applying very carefully on the, on the Aura side. 
Got it. And, and, and really quickly here, I mean, how much capital have you guys raised today? So we've raised about 400-ish million dollars total, I guess, uh, 350, 400 million bucks total. It's been uh, over a series of uh, four or five rounds, you know, so it, including the debt. It's probably a little bit more than that. Uh, and so the most recent one that we raised was our Series E with uh, Warburg Pincus. We raised about 150 million of capital uh, in total. And uh, a lot of that being deployed now towards growth and scale and ramp up, basically. That's amazing. So, so let's talk about, you know, because you're you you you've been mentioning like how you speak with the teams, how you you know prepare or or really get the mindset, you know, for achieving you know whatever goals are there in front of you. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Harry, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Aura is fully realized. What does that world look like? You know, I had a good friend that once told me that you know when you set up the vision for a company. You imagine the world without your product in it first, and then you imagine the world with your product in it, and how has the world gotten better, right? So for us, if we think about the full realization of Aura, it is such a massive challenge across the globe, not just the U.S., everywhere else. So people feeling safe and feel, having a sense of well-being around their digital life would be the real realization of our dream. So if uh, you know families wake up and say, hey, I'm not particularly worried about somebody stealing my money, somebody is uh, uh, stealing my data getting a whole bunch of annoying robocalls and things like that, that uh, really kind of, you know, uh, jam into people's lives and have the sense of wellness and well-being and feel like, okay, like I've got my stuff covered. Somebody's taking care of it. I don't need to stress about that for me or my family. I feel like we'd have really kind of achieved our dream at that point if we can get there. Nice. So imagine I put you into a time machine, Ari, and I bring you back in time. You know, to that point where you were thinking about doing the dropout of Stanford, you know, and, and yeah. building your first company. If you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger Harry one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I, what I would tell myself if I had to go back in time is having the humility to keep your mind open, to learn from everything around you and not feel that the journey is a manifestation of my own ego, but it's about something bigger than that. And you're building something that leaves real tangible value for your customers, for your employees and everybody else and not have it be so centered on, you know, uh, tying up my own identity with the thing that I'm building, but really think about all the benefit I'm driving for everybody else around me by being much more open-minded, learning a lot. Uh, that actually would have helped me a lot in my early days. And again, when you're a young person, when I was a young person, again, I don't know about others, but uh, when I was a young person, I was so driven by, you know, achieving, accomplishing and not thinking as much about, you know, the benefit I can drive, the outcomes I can drive for other people. How do you build a, uh, something that has sustainable and lasting impact? Uh, that would have been good advice for me, I, I would think, uh, if I can go back. So, I love that. That's very powerful and very profound, Harry. Well, Harry... For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, so definitely, I'm on uh, Twitter now. I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my email is hurry at aura.com. Uh, feel free to drop me a note anytime. Would love to always hear if there are young entrepreneurs that have questions. Uh, happy to answer them. Love uh, working with folks that are passionate and excited about uh, ideas. So uh, uh, definitely, definitely love to uh, love to engage uh, in in whatever way possible. Amazing. Well, Harry, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. I appreciate the time. It was great. I really enjoyed that. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.